In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Casey Lundquist is our guest this week on Money Tales. When Casey was growing up, she worked really hard to make the club volleyball team. She was excited when she achieved this goal, but there was a problem. Club volleyball would cost $2,000 per year. That was outside of what her parents could afford. Casey shares that she felt crushed by that. It was the first thing in her life that she really wanted to do, and money got in the way. Casey decided then and there that she didn't ever want to be in a position like that where she couldn't do something because she didn't have the money for it. Today, Casey is general partner and co-founder of Rise Together Ventures. They invest in high-growth, for-profit companies led by mission-driven founders. And they empower these entrepreneurs to jumpstart social impact within their companies by providing philanthropic capital in parallel with an equity investment. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Casey hits on in this conversation. First, would you rather have wealth early in life or later on? Casey shares why she thinks later in life is better. Second, the push and pull Casey felt early in her career between having time and having money because having both seemed impossible. And third, how she and her business partner are actively innovating to pair impact investing with philanthropy. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Casey Lundquist. Hey, Money Tales listeners, this is Cami, and I'm here with Sandy. We are really excited about today's conversation. Sandy, I wanted to share with you a story before we dive in. It reminded me of what we talked about a few weeks back when your son had to be in the emergency room. Yes. And besides the scary accidents that cause us to get to the emergency room, you hit on the surprise factor when your bill comes. Yes, because you don't get a bill when you're there in the hospital. So it's always a bit of a surprise to see what things look like when that bill does arrive in the mail. And by the way, we still haven't received it yet. See, that's the thing. As you know, a couple of months ago, I decided to try skateboarding for the first time in a hundred decades, which was not a smart idea. And I broke my wrist. So I've been getting the right medical care and I've had my cast on. I was really excited to go to physical therapy and it's hard to find people who've got availability. So I finally get a place they can take me and they ask, what's your insurance? I say what it is. Oh, we take that. That's great. And then to your point, you don't get the bills and I'm just excited to be in. In our industry, you ask a lot of questions if you're helping your client. 
I didn't think to check, are they in network or out of network? Uh-oh. Surprise, they're not in network. <laughs> I got my first bill. These things are very expensive. You were surprised? I was surprised. And I should have asked more questions. Maybe they could have helped me a little further. Again, I was celebrating that they had availability. But it's really unfortunate that these things are surprises. So I have a question for you, Cami. Has learning that fact changed the way you are making decisions about where you're getting your PT? It has. I'm deciding that I'm not going to continue with this group. Instead of doing a few more I was planning on, I think I could do a lot of it on myself, which is awful, but I'm going to go on YouTube. I'm going to continue with these exercises because it was expensive. And I felt like the ROI on that investment, I've got what I need. And maybe that's the purpose of these expensive healthcare bills. I think you're proving the point that it's helpful knowing all the relevant information that we need to have allows us to make the best decisions for ourselves. Absolutely. I hope your wrist is better. (laughs) It's getting a lot better and I'm not skateboarding again. All right, let's welcome our guest today, Casey Lundquist. It is fantastic to be talking with you today on Money Tales. Likewise, thanks for having me. Would you start us off with an introduction and provide two or three pivotal moments that really impacted you and made you the person you are today? I am born and bred in Southern California, grew up in a utopian place called Santa Barbara. My start of my adult life is post-college and I entered into the finance realm and did the investment banking and private equity shtick for about five years. Amazing foundational learnings, financial freedom, and allowed me to grow up as a young female adult. I decided I wanted to try something a little bit entrepreneurial. So pivot number one was post-business school. I wanted to work at a startup. No one would hire me, surprisingly, because I thought coming from my background, everyone would want to hire me. You know, I'm an Excel whiz and uh, (laughs) I've learned so much. I went to the fancy banks and fancy private equity firms, but they viewed me as expensive, inflexible, rigid, not an adaptable background. And I have to say some of that is actually probably true. So I ended up working for a friend of a friend who'd won the business school competition for her idea, which was Rent the Runway for Bride Space Dresses. Genius idea, really hard to implement. I joined her as employee number three, and it was really interesting. I went from having my own assistant in New York and to making no money. And I'm literally packing the boxes, putting them on the back of my bike, biking places sometimes because we missed the UPS cutoff. So that was a really cool total change in career in every way, but really learned more so in those two or three years that I was there than I did in the prior five years. Continued on this journey. I moved to Amsterdam after I got married, ended up working at a few scale-ups, which are bigger startups still in the operational realm. And so I would consider this like the second career. It went from finance to the startup realm. And I'd really been introduced to venture capital in this period of time as well, because we at the Bridesmaid Dress Rental Company, we had to go out and raise money. We were a really small lean startup. We ended up raising about $10 million across three rounds from both institutional and high net worth individuals. I really got educated on the side of venture capital from the startup side of things. Once I moved to a scale up, it was really nice actually having more resources. So being able to take more risks and having more resources and being able to hire a bigger team to push your goals forward. I worked at two startups. One was called Flexport in the digital freight forwarding space. The other one is Bird Mobility, which is the scooter company, which if you're in LA, you likely have seen your scooters lying around the sidewalk. My second pivotal moment was post-child. 
I'd given birth and I had a lot of PTO's days saved up. So I had quite a, a lengthy maternity leave. My husband and I had moved back to Santa Barbara where we both grew up. I wanted to give some time back to the community. And so like any other type A person, I went really deep into the nonprofit realm. I called every single person who I knew who had been in that realm. I did a bunch of site visits. I read a bunch of articles, subscribed to a bunch of newsletters. And I was generally a little bit underwhelmed with what I'd seen. And so I started more deeply exploring it, which takes me to my third career move is I've started my own small venture fund that's focused on both venture and philanthropy. We have two pools of capital and we look to invest in companies that have a product or a service that can be repurposed or reimagined to do good in the world. And we subsidize that or we provide philanthropic budget to do just that. Casey, what a great introduction. So many launching points to dive into. Let's go back to this utopic upbringing growing up in Santa Barbara. It is amazing. I went to college there and it is paradise. It really is. Tell us your backstory. What was money like when you were growing up? What were conversations like in your family? How was it discussed or not discussed? I actually think I had a really fortunate upbringing in that I didn't grow up with money, but I was fortunate enough to go to a private school here on scholarship. I went to school with a lot of very wealthy kids coming from very wealthy families. I think it humbles you to be around wealth and you don't really realize it growing up. But now when I look back, you really do notice how people with wealth act differently or you notice that people are different when they have money. They have different people coming to pick them up in different cars all the time. And my dad would come pick me up in his pickup truck. My dad was a home builder and my mom was a graphic designer. So we were never hard on money, but we were just in a completely different socioeconomic level versus the other folks that I went to school with. I actually think it allowed me to have a healthy relationship with money because I saw what it was to have a lot of money. I saw that I grew up in a very happy home. And I saw these other kids who actually came from these homes that were a bit broken. And now when I look back on it, I think it was largely driven by the amount of money. But it was humbling in that there were times that I recall being uncomfortable when I was the last one to get picked up because I don't have a nanny to pick me up. And so I had to wait for my parents to finish their workday. And sometimes that meant not getting picked up till 5.30 when kids were getting picked up 3.30. And I would sit there and do my homework. And as a result, I actually got really good grades. I had a lot of free time to do my homework. Were you thinking about that money differential in those moments? Yeah. And it's interesting because I was young, third or fourth grade. And you think a third grader or fourth grader doesn't really understand this. But I remember at times being embarrassed because I got picked up in a pickup truck later in the day and people are coming in their fancy Range Rovers. And now that I have my own children, I want to make sure that I put pressure on me to have those discussions at younger ages. Because when I think back to it, I think kids really do understand and see money and the differences of people that have money and don't at much earlier stages than I would have guessed now that I am an adult. Were your parents tuned into that with you at the time and talking with you? About how the money situation was different between your family and most of the kids you were going to school with? Yeah, it came up more as I would say, I want these new pairs of shoes because my classmates literally come with new pair of shoes every day. And I was like, this is wild. It was a private school. So you wore the same clothing every day, which was really nice. You didn't have that differentiation on clothing, but then the way to differentiate yourself was through shoes. And Adidas are really cool. And so people would come in with Adidas with different colored stripes every day. And I got one pair of shoes per school year. You don't really need more than one pair of shoes per kid, but it would manifest itself in that way of, I want a different pair of shoes. Like Sally in my class has different shoes every day. And it's like, that's just not in our wheelhouse. Or one time I really wanted to join the club volleyball team that was outside of school. 
I made the team and I was really excited, but it was an extra $2,000 a year. And that was a lot of money to my family. And it should be considered a lot of money to anyone, I think. I remember my parents said, oh, it's just not a good time. It was in the early 2000s. Markets had crashed. It just wasn't a good time for home building or anything. And I remember feeling so upset, crushed, and not understanding why I couldn't participate in this when I had worked so hard to make the team. And I made the team and it was such an amazing opportunity. My parents ended up scrambling together and asked some family members to chip in. So I was able to participate in this. And it was a really meaningful thing. But I remember thinking... That was the first thing in my life that I really wanted to do and I couldn't do because of money. And I think that drove something in me where I don't ever want to be in a position where I can't do something because I don't have money. Like It gave me fire that I don't think other kids who grew up with money actually had. And so I think it's part of the reason why I worked so hard and got good grades so I could go to a good school and then ended up in investment banking. I wasn't passionate about investment banking, but it allowed me to have the financial freedom to do what I wanted to do. Would you describe to us what you observed with these other kids you're growing up with, that money was a detractor. It should be nothing but positive, creates all these opportunities, but you talked about the broken homes and things like that. Describe what you were observing. I think it's later in life. So I always think of if you had a chance to be really rich at one period of time, I would say later in life would be the time to be rich because I've seen children come from these families where they were quite wealthy. And for one reason or another, the families lost a lot of money. And I think when you grow up with a lot of money, you don't have the tool sets, you don't learn the skills of dealing with life and the hard things that come about when you don't have money. If you grow up without money, you just have a different perspective on life and what is necessary and what's not necessary and how to find happiness without needing to go to the toy store and buy a bunch of things. And so I think it's really the families and the children who grew up with a lot of money and therefore didn't acquire certain skill sets or coping capabilities, which then when you're post-college and all of a sudden your parents can't afford to pay for you and you haven't really found what you want to do or are passionate in life and are able to subsist on your own financially, it's almost too late. Casey, you said you had a fire burning in your belly from these childhood experiences and that led you into the investment banking world. And earlier, you told us about the first real pivot into startup world, and you had a very different financial situation then. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? It's always a balance of do you want life or do you want money? Growing up without money made me want at least to have that financial security of never having to worry about paying a hospital bill, breaking my arm, or not being able to experience something because I didn't have that financial security. And so that's what I went after. There's an old adage, you either have money or you have time, which I think in some ways is true. I worked for five years in New York. I didn't experience a ton of New York because I was usually just working. After five years, I realized I wanted to experience life as well. At that point, I'd accumulated enough wealth that I could take a little bit of a step back and experiment with somebody else, knowing that I could always go back into the financial realm. And I had confidence at that point that I could always find a role that wouldn't necessarily allow me to live in a huge mansion, but I wasn't going to go broke and I wasn't going to not be able to pay my hospital bills. When you're at that stage, when you're in your late 20s and you haven't totally figured out what you're passionate about, you get a little bit antsy in your pantsy. And I got a little antsy in my pantsy and just wanted to experience something a little bit more entrepreneurial and see if I could apply that mindset. When I finally made enough to have a secure foundation of capital, I was willing to take a calculated risk. 
to go back into the startup realm. Part of that has worked out financially, other parts have not. (laughs) It's great to hear that you were calculated about it. And it sounds like you were really focused on an experience where you would learn a lot more and that you did get that learning. So we're glad that worked out for you. And tell us about your other pivot. You got married, you had a child, and then you started to dive into the nonprofit world. What prompted that dive? I accumulated some wealth myself over my career. I'm extremely frugal in nature, probably due to my upbringing, but also feel the need to give back. And I'd always given back from a time perspective. I volunteered, I'd served on boards in New York City in my free time, but really wanted to explore ways to give back financially. Probably part of it is having kids and wanting to leave the world a better place for your kids. And specifically for me, feeling fortunate that I have financial comfort. My husband has financial comfort that we can hire a nanny and we can pay for our kids to go to preschool and then go to museums on the weekend and really experience interesting things. I really wanted to enable other underprivileged children to experience something. And so I I dove into that realm Someone shared a stat with me that 80% of your brain is developed at age three. And it makes you think you need to provide young children with healthy educational experiences at a younger age. And our government doesn't necessarily allow for that quite yet. So how can we help younger children experience educational things as early as possible, despite their socioeconomic backgrounds? You talked about getting a strong foundation in finance. Obviously, when you were working in investment banking and private equity, so you were doing that for five years, but you learned the most in the two years at your first startup. What do you think you learned about money in those two years? Just taking lean startup and lean mentality to the extremes, both personally and professionally. Personally, I'm making less post-business school. I have business school of loans to pay back. And I'm used to having a pretty substantial paycheck that allows me to do things. All of a sudden, I'm making less than I made literally my first year out of college. You hope that your equity converts into something meaningful, but that's a total hope. And no one going into startups should assume that a single share of your equity will convert into anything more than a cent. The company ended up going under. And so my equity did go to zero. It was an experience that was less financially fruitful than you'd obviously hoped. So it was really just buckling down. It seems weird in finance. I never thought about making myself a sandwich or a lunch. I would just go out and buy one, even though it was $20 by a salad in New York. And all of a sudden it was like, well, I am bringing my own lunch to work every single day. It is a sandwich every single day because you need to really strap down. And the same thing from a company perspective, you're basically trying to make payroll every other Friday. And we really had this very frugal mentality, making sure we were using our cash as wisely as possible. It was a really capital intensive business because you needed to buy deep into certain skews of dresses, sizes, and colors. We built things and broke them very quickly, but built them on real streets and rushes. So if you looked at our warehouse where we kept our dresses, we hired some people off the streets to outfit our warehouse so we could fit all these dresses in. When we talked to ex-operations people from Rent the Runway, you get introduced to these really fancy people. And it's like, here, this is the drawing that we think we would do. And you say, Oh, thank you so much. And then you take that drawing to the person next door to do it for $5,000 instead of the $50,000 budget that you were quoted from the professionals. So it was really about hustling. And it's amazing how much you can get done if you hustle. It was a big learning of mine. And you always have to ask. That was another big learning. Always ask for help and always ask for a discount. I do this. My husband is so embarrassed, but 
There's actually a book called The Happiness Project. And one of the months is about just asking for discounts, going to Starbucks and saying, would you give it to me for 10% off? Can you give me a 10% discount today? It's my birthday. What are you going to lose? You have nothing to lose asking for discounts. Everything is negotiable in my mind. Oh, that's a good one. And that was a big learning from this time. We had a shoestring budget, so we weren't able to afford it. So I think it's uncomfortable for people with money to ask. Some people see that as a faux pas, but the world is a marketplace and there is no reason to try and find a mutually beneficial price for everything you buy, whether it's a coffee, whether it's a bag, whether it's a house. People are always negotiating. A lot of rich money learning in here. Tell us how you're taking this into the philanthropic world from a venture standpoint. I've now been blessed. My mother remarried later in life to someone who's been very generous to me. And I mentioned earlier that I'd rather have money later in life than earlier in life. I've been lucky enough that I've lived that life where I didn't necessarily grow up with money, but then I earned my own money. And now I've been surrounded by family members who have been more financially successful. And that made me think earlier than I necessarily would have about being philanthropic. But also because of my upbringing of not making money, I always want to be able to make my own money. And I would love to learn ways to combine that. And I think, as I also mentioned, this next gen interest in not necessarily giving money to your alma mater or putting money in the equities markets, like how can we be a little bit more innovative? This quote unquote innovation economy is something that's closer to the millennials and the Gen Zs of the world. And talking to some family friends who come from the family office world, I was curious to see how they actually combine their investing strategy with impact or with philanthropy. And a lot of them keep them very siloed. And I don't think that necessarily makes sense. There's a lot of room to combine your investing in philanthropic endeavors to go towards the shared mission. And my current business partner, he actually comes from the family office world. So I've now surrounded myself with a bunch of people who come from the family office world. Me not coming from that has been a really interesting learning. But he was struggling with the same thing with his own internal family office of how can I create impact and how can I find joy, happiness, and energy in what I'm doing when I've been lucky enough to grow up with money. And he also comes from the venture world. So he saw the impact that startups can make. The solution that we came up with was how can we empower and encourage these founders with different human potential of moving quickly, innovating, breaking things, and being creative? How can we empower them with philanthropic capital to make change in the world? But also, how can we make a buck while doing this? There's so much money sitting in philanthropic pools of capital, not just foundations, but even DAFs. There's something like $200 billion sitting in DAFs right now that isn't really moving, how can we empower folks who have put money into DAFs to do something more meaningful and impactful with their money? And so we created a fund that is essentially two pools of capital. One is a bread and butter venture fund. The other is a pooled DAF donor advised fund. And essentially what we do is we look for companies in the pre-IPO space, anywhere from series A to series D or E that have a product or a service that they're providing but can't necessarily provide it to all populations due to the for-profit nature of these businesses. You also have nonprofits that have a place in progressing human progress, but don't necessarily have the resources or the innovation mindset of creating change at scale. And they're also tied to their annual budgets where for-profits have a capitalistic engine that allows them to grow exponentially rather than linearly. So if we have the ability to connect these two worlds and allow these nonprofits to connect onto these capitalistic engines, is there a way that we can empower these companies, these startups to 
create good in the world. This is all a bit philosophical. So I'll give you an example. There is a company called Flexport, which I actually used to work at and now is a portfolio company of ours. They are freight forwarders. So they choreograph the movement of goods throughout the world. So if you are wearing Allbirds shoes or you have a Sonos speaker in your office. I am wearing Allbirds shoes. There you go. Well, those probably came from Flexport. Those came from China and they had to get on a boat to get here. If you opened your eyes and said, what other stuff is really important in the world that needs to move around? Medical supplies, medical goods, especially during times of disaster when things need to get somewhere quickly. Why not empower Flexport, a master at choreographing the movement of goods in a technology-first way? Why not empower them to help UNICEF move goods to Haiti after a time of disaster? And from a donor perspective, I would much rather fund the movement of goods via a Flexport, which moves more quickly, has better volume discounts. It's thinking creatively about ways companies can shift their business model a little bit to do good in the world. We ultimately made a donation that allowed Flexport to ship UNICEF's first shipment of medical supplies to Ukraine during the Ukrainian crisis. As a donor, that's a really impactful, immediate way to put your money to work. And as a venture capitalist, we also invest in the businesses on the side. We're excited about companies that can create purpose and create value outside of financial value. Do you actually have both the venture fund and the pooled donor advised funds investing at the same time? So you've got one supporting the philanthropic efforts and one supporting just the overall business? Exactly. What does success look like for you in this realm? Success really looks like making impact a norm at these earlier stage companies. You have the Coca-Colas and the Starbucks who know that purpose is powerful. They also have the capital means to do that, but they're not necessarily connecting the dots, I think, from a business perspective. Coca-Cola does a lot of good work in Africa and they fund a lot of schools being built in Africa, but that doesn't necessarily connect to the business of making Coca-Cola. For us, what success looks like is having all companies at all walks of life and stages of development, giving back in some way, whether that is a simple volunteer day, connecting to foundations when core profits have ideas of how they can create more efficient help than the nonprofit next door. Casey, tell us what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? This conversation has made me think that I probably need to have more money conversations with my kids. Although I'm really frugal, my husband likes to spoil And we have very different perspectives on money. His is probably healthier than mine. I have a three-year-old and probably doesn't understand that when you go into store, you can't just buy everything. It's important to instill that idea of earning money and spending wisely on what you actually want. So it made me think that I should probably start being a little bit more rigorous on creating some boundaries of what they can purchase and what they can't when they go to stores and having that conversation. You can only buy one thing you need to make some decisions and maybe we buy something for someone else. So both instilling the idea that you can't have everything, but also it's important to give back to your community and share the wealth and the goods that you have with the people who are less fortunate. What a great conversation. And all of us with kids are trying to navigate this landscape. It's hard at times. There's so many things that are right at eye level that entice them to want to buy. Wishing you great success with those conversations. And Thanks for joining us on Money Tales and sharing your backstory, sharing what you're doing at Rise Together Ventures. Really amazing work and wishing you continued success. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.